Hey, Piers. It's Michelle. I've got some exciting news. The Piers Project has just produced a podcast for Bryony Kennedy, the CEO of award-winning Australian cosmetics brand, Adorn Cosmetics. If you've ever needed a compass to navigating the different areas of your life, then this podcast, Beauty, Business and Babies, is for you. In this fortnightly series, Bryony shares the tears and triumphs that come with navigating the tensions between the pivotal areas in a woman's life and assures women everywhere that they're not alone in feeling like a mess. So make sure to tune in now to Beauty, Business and Babies by Adorn Cosmetics on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or just head straight to the link in this episode's description. Now let's get into this episode. This is the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by The Peers Project. Hello, peers. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akidanor, founder of The Peers Project, millennial entrepreneur, world traveler, podcast expert, and forever your fellow passionate peer. Each week, I invite inspiring millennial entrepreneurs from around the globe to chat with me. No filters, just real talk, peer-to-peer. Together, we unpack what it takes to go your own way and why there's nothing better. As always, thank you for listening. If you enjoy our podcast, please do pass it on. The more peers, the merrier. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. If you're an aspiring business owner, then it's 100% normal to feel tempted by the siren call of success. But often, staying grounded and in touch with our true selves is far more important than wealth and status combined. I'm super excited to welcome Erica Gerrards onto the show today. Erica is the co-founder of communications agency Willow & Blake, one of the co-founders of Frank Body, and now the founder of Fluff. In today's episode, we learn exactly what led Erica to co-found multiple thriving businesses and how her ability to reassess her values and stay grounded motivated her to change the face of the beauty industry. For those of you who haven't yet, make sure to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story, and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs. Okay, without further ado, here is my conversation with the incredible Erica Gerrards. Erica, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Awesome. So, you know, you and I recently connected when we were speaking on a panel at Monash Uni together. And when I heard about your story kind of in depth, I knew I had to have you come on the show. So I really appreciate you taking the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love chatting. So <laughs> We love that. We're just going to chat for the next, you know, 40 minutes or so. Perfect. (laughs) Um, Awesome. Awesome. So, you know, for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do, tell us a little bit about yourself. 
So I have done a few things since leaving university and I always try and sort of, I guess, bring it back to most relevant or what I'm doing now is I have a beauty brand, even though I wouldn't say I'm obsessed with beauty at all. I love people and branding and that's where my life has sort of always taken me. So I studied journalism and I would still say that I'm a writer and words have just taken me into lots of different places and across lots of different industries and specifically working um, or writing for product-based businesses. I love that. And oh my goodness, you have achieved so much and done so much since uni and I can't wait to dive into that with you. But I guess before we do, I'd love to start with a question which I often find to be very insightful and revealing, and that is, what did your parents do and how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far? So, you know, if you had have asked me that question a year ago, I wouldn't have really thought about or been able to articulate how they had impacted my life. But I've been seeing a psychologist for about a year now, and now I understand everything in terms of how they've impacted me, you know, the good and the bad. And so my dad is a tennis coach, and my mum has been several things, but she has been sort of in IT management. But they both were sport players. So my dad was a tennis player, my mum was a squash player. That's how they met. And my dad is, they're both retired now. My dad has a new partner, um, but my dad coaches a small amount and then my mum kind of just lives a life of leisure now apart from helping me sometimes with business or just doing a few little management kind of consulting gigs. I love that. And I always, yeah, I always love asking that question because I think inherently they have played such a role and I think our upbringing has, has as well. So I guess talk to us a little bit about, you know, Erica, the early years, you know, as a, as a kid, did you still love to write a lot, to read? Like what, what were you like? And I guess what influence, I guess, from your parents or from where you grew up or whatnot, I guess, how did that play a role in, in kind of your early childhood days? Yeah, so I grew up in Melbourne in Bayside and I have a twin sister. We're fraternal, so not identical. And then I have an older brother and we had a really great upbringing. Um, Even though my parents sort of separated when I was young, it wasn't what I would say sort of overly traumatic and they were incredible parents to us in terms of raising us and providing us with so many opportunities. And I do think that my mindset is very much a combination of my mum and dad and that my dad, he's the most positive person in the world and he has always told me that I could do anything that I dream of and that I set out to achieve. And then my mum would sort of always caveat that with, you know, so long as you're willing to work really hard, it's not going to be handed to you on a silver platter. So I think that that sort of resulted in me having this reckless ambition and sort of naive optimism or optimistic approach of just trying anything and everything, but then also knowing that I had to back it up and put the hours in to get to that sort of dream or that goal. I love that. What was kind of your first kind of goal, that big, you know, reckless goal? Was it, would you say, when you were heading into university or in your high school days? Like, talk to us a little bit about that time there. Yeah, I I wouldn't say that I knew that I wanted to be a writer until I was maybe 16 or 17. I remember I did work experience at a law firm and I think I wanted to do that just because I liked the idea of being like professional and wearing like a fancy suit. And then as soon as I did work experience, I knew that I wasn't cut out for that and it wasn't what I actually wanted to pursue. But I've always been a really curious person and I've been interested in people and trying to understand them 
and sort of put myself in their shoes or just their stories and what they do and where they're from and what their experiences are. And it sort of got to a point. I mean, I've always journaled and I never would have thought that was much of a significant thing, but I've realised now that I've actually dug up some of my old journals and looked over them, like realise how significant writing has been for me over the years. And so it almost makes sense that it was this natural, if not sort of sporadic progression that writing became my career. So I think that just curiosity and then trying to tell stories is what came together. And when I had to make a decision about a career or what I was going to study at university, I I figured this was where my interests were, were lying. And I had, you know, read a few particular profile pieces on people that I really liked and they got into my head where I was like this this author is saying exactly what I'm thinking and wouldn't it be amazing if I could do that for someone else so that was where I think I first was like that's my goal to write something that someone else can connect with and relate to and it was quite a simple goal I guess and then I just applied that to many different avenues. I find it so interesting I think you know, so many of us go into those uni days or the, you know, we finish up at school and high school and we kind of think most of us, you know, are kind of like, I have no idea what I actually want to do. I find it fascinating for you. It was like, uh, there is this one thing, but I'm not too sure how it would play out, how it's going to play out. I guess what advice would you give to our peers out there listening who are at that phase or that stage where they're still, maybe they don't know, maybe they're, you know, 25 and just entered into the workforce, or maybe they're 35 and they're, they're just kind of coming out, out of this 10 year epic career. And they're still not too sure what it is that actually drives them and what that thing is for them. Mm. You know, what advice would you give on that? I would tell people to try things, but not force things. And I say that because that sort of positive like approach to things or just giving things a go but you'll never know if something isn't right unless you try Um, and I think one of the most valuable lessons we can learn is either what we don't like or what we're not good at even though some people might see that as a failure or as a negative because the more you know about what you don't want the more space that gives you to acknowledge what you do want or to find what you do want But the worst thing is trying to force a career or an idea or a process on somebody. So I think it's about creating your own boundaries and knowing how much time you are going to give to something. And I think it's crazy to ask any 17, 18-year-old to know what they want to do with their career at that age. You've experienced so little in the world unless you have sort of had a a privileged enough upbringing to travel and to meet a lot of different people at that age. So I really feel like there should be space allocated to that sort of discovery and exploring and trying things before you commit three or four years to a university degree. And what I would also say like in that space is to really encourage people to think about what they care about and to kind of have that blue sky idea if you could do anything or get paid to do what you care about what would that be and then to discuss with yourself well how does that become a reality and within the systems that we live in in our society you know there are negotiations or trade-offs you know I get to do what I love every day and what I care about which is writing but that comes with a lot of boring shit stuff (laughs) you know there are trade-offs and being my own boss or running a company is amazing but 
that freedom is also limited or has its own confines. So I think it's about being as conscious and aware of that as possible. So they're sort of the few things for me. And I just always say, like, talk to people, go out there and, you know, find out what it's like in particular industries, in particular careers, get a feel for it, try and understand the good things and the bad things so that you can make the most informed decision about yourself and what you want to do. So well said. It's very true. Amazing. So let's then dive into kind of what you decided to do. So you headed off to Monash Uni. You did a bachelor's degree in journalism. You know, talk to us a little bit about that time there. You know, what did you learn about yourself and kind of where you wanted to go? I learned that I love practical work as opposed to theory-based work. And I think coming out of high school, I was just ready to work and earn money. And I was, I felt constrained at uni all I wanted to do was write and all I was doing was learning about writing and that definitely helped but I wanted to just be be kind of in the industry practicing that craft as opposed to just learning about it I also like I wasn't as into the social side of university I felt like I kind of have enough friends or that I was trying to work and I had moved out of home so I was trying to pay rent but University gave me obviously like quite a sort of a general overview of what journalism could entail. And so I got this taste straight away for broadcast journalism, print journalism, journalism ethics, um, feature writing, hard news. And so I was like, oh, this is what I like. This is what I don't like. This is where I think my strengths would be. Um, And I found that the more time I was spending online and when I was at uni, social media was just starting to become a thing. So naturally my writing just started lending itself to social or to digital writing or copywriting, which I didn't really even know was a term, you know, at that point. It was only when I was sort of offered my first job and really learned everything with my boss at the time on the go as social media was being discovered by businesses and they were, we were making up the rules on our own along the way. So I think, yeah, uni furthers sort of the discipline and structures that, school can give you which in some ways is important especially if you're going to enter the workforce but because a lot of my work is creatively driven you know I'm naturally going to have frustrations within a system like that. What do we do when we have frustrations and we feel like we can't get out? I think that ideas well I mean fluff was born out of a frustration Um, so I think it's about not viewing them negatively and kind of asking yourself, well, yeah, what am I going to do about this other than whinge and complain? And it's about really sitting with them and trying to understand what what they mean. Like I really like this idea that emotion is data. So when feelings come up, whether that's frustration or anger or sort of boredom or feeling disheartened or dis content within what you're doing or in an industry it's like what is this telling me why is it telling me this and then yeah what do I do with it because we often try and push it away or inflict it onto other people as opposed to sitting with it and being like can I do something with this anger or frustration can I channel it into something good like a business very true I find it fascinating though because I think so many of us we often just don't take it that, that step further. We often get to the point where we're like, I'm really frustrated by this thing, but hey, you know what? I'm just going to keep whinging and keep complaining. I think it's fascinating that you were able to always take it that that one step further. So I think that kind of lends to 
yeah, that kind of first work experience that you had. So I think it was at a company called cassette and you were the social media manager and copywriter there. You know, talk to us a little bit about what that time meant for you. Where did that opportunity come about? And yeah, how that kind of all eventuated. Yeah. So I was offered that role at cassette while I was finishing my university degree. So my housemate at the time and I, she was also a writer. We had discussed this idea of pulling our blogs together and making a super blog. And there was this design agency cassette that was running a competition and they were giving away a free website and you had to write in 25 words or less why you should win. So I wrote this little piece, posted it to their Facebook and then the managing director messaged me the next day and said, I love your entry and the way that you wrote your piece. We're looking for someone to run our social media. Would you be interested And I was just this young 21-year-old stoked to have been offered an interview or to just have someone say that my writing was cool. And But I literally was like, what social media? Because for me, I was just like, all I knew was Facebook, not this idea of like a a medium or this whole separate thing. So I went in for an interview and I was like, oh, I just, my blog is about food because they asked if I could bring samples of my writing. And I said, oh, you know, I've got some articles about eggs. Would you like to read them? But Charlie saw something in me and, yeah, offered me this job. And I did a lot of copywriting for all different brands and lots of different industries. And then got to kind of work closely with him as he was growing his business. And that's when my role sort of diverged a bit also into account management, which was a great skill to learn, but one I realised I didn't love. And again, I was just young and all I wanted to do was write. And so I felt that pull towards pursuing that in its entirety. And then also had Charlie as like the best and worst example as a boss because best he taught me so much, but worst he had started his company when he was 19. So I felt like I was behind the eight ball and had to leave. There you go. Oh, wow. So then where did this idea for Willow and Blake come about? Was it because of the frustration that you that you were having there around not writing? Like, how did that progress? Yeah, so I think, so we, Charlie ended up making this website for myself and my housemate Jess and our friend Bree to combine our blogs and it gained a lot of traction. It was just about people and us telling their stories. But off the back of that, we were getting several freelance requests. And that combined with our sort of wanting to do our own thing or just solely write really led us to be like, maybe we could turn this into an agency. And because at the time, you had design agencies and PR agencies, but no writing agencies that were just dedicated to content. And again, we were optimistic perhaps a little bit naive and we're just like how high could it be like let's just do this um you know we didn't have many responsibilities or obligations other than rent so we we just thought let's try it and I'm grateful for that optimism that I still have I'm probably a little bit more adverse to risk now than I was but yeah it helped us throw ourselves in there and you know we would we were doing what we loved so that fed us more than making money and paying for an expensive meal did yeah it's so interesting i think you know so many of us i mean i literally just recently got asked the question but how do you know you know like i'm i'm still young i might be still at uni or i'm just first year out and i've got this business that all this idea for a business and you know maybe i could just go out and do that but then 
should I be getting some professional experience? Like wh- where do I kind of land on that? I guess what would be your advice to our peers out there listening who are experiencing that kind of tension between the two now? Yeah, there definitely is a tension. And I think that it's very hard to resist or fight your gut that just tells you to go and do your own thing or pursue an idea. But I am very grateful for the almost two years that I had at Cassette and what I learnt from Charlie and what I learnt from working for a company and with a team. Those skills have been so beneficial to me. There's days where I'm like, I wish I could have done a few more years because I still feel really kind of unskilled in that area or I've had to learn that sort of on my own. But Again, there is a certain level of like discipline and structure if you are ever going to create a team that I think you have to learn. And it's great to have been on the other side, to have been an employee so that as an employer, I can be more empathetic with my staff and understand their position and their wants and their needs. And, you know, as well, starting a business these days is incredible, but it's it's a lot harder than when I started my few businesses. There's so much more competition. There are algorithms that you have to compete with. You have to pay to play. Like it's not as easy with Willow and Blake and both Frank when we started those two businesses. We sort of had the whole stage. Influencer payments weren't a thing. Facebook advertising wasn't a thing. Our organic growth was so much easier. So now it's like there's a lot of hard work involved. So I would say to people, you know, it it helps to think about what your baseline needs are to live and what expenses you have and how you're going to cover them because you sort of want to work with a, a baseline that maybe you won't make money in the first year or maybe you'll make a very small amount. But social media sort of done this strange thing for us where we all think we're going to be millionaires within the first year which is great to aspire to. And there are a few people that do, like it does happen, but it isn't the norm. I think that's what we have to remember. Those unicorn brands are called unicorns for a reason. It's, um, it's just so true. I think, I think also yourself having been part of one of those unicorn brands that did just go, you know, go straight from zero to 100 and, you know, in a very short amount of time. It's almost so refreshing to hear, you know, I think so many of us, yeah, now, I mean, those of us who were already, who have already dived in, realize just how tough it is. And I think how much of that, how much of it is just gloss and is just, oh, I've got this amount of followers and it really doesn't have much to do with the bottom line and whatnot. Um, so I find that really interesting. I guess I'd love to know just a quick kind of overview of that Frank body time. I know you've talked about it a lot before, but just kind of the progression there, you know, where did that idea come about? And then what were those kind of huge short years, but of massive growth like for you? Yeah. So Frank Body was born out of Willow and Blake. Essentially, we started Willow and Blake doing freelance writing, turned it into an agency, took on clients across a lot of different industries, were developing their tone of voice, rolling out all their copywriting collateral, and then keeping them on retainer services around marketing and social media and as we were three 20 something girls we got a lot of work in beauty and fashion so we had a lot of experience within those industries and with brands and products and we noticed a really big 
growth in the area around health and fitness and beauty and lifestyle. But this was, again, just when Instagram was starting and brands were jumping on board. So we really were looking at Clinique and Estee Lauder and the body shop. Like that was what was online. Indie brands were like so few and far and people didn't know really how to use social media and it was probably a lot of older companies trying to understand this platform which was a lot more intuitive for 20 something year olds and so we were just sort of playing around and and we felt disengaged with the content that these established heritage brands were producing and we thought that beauty and skincare in particular could be way more fun and so we knew that we wanted to create a product. We had some friends who had businesses online who were doing incredibly well. And it was just a matter of what product do we create? And Bree, my business partner, her partner, Steve, owned a few cafes at the time. And he had women come in and ask for leftover coffee grinds to use them as an exfoliator. So it was he who came with the idea to us and was like, could this be something that we can create on our own? And then you guys spend the time marketing. And we were like, sure, maybe this will make us a little bit of money on the side. It's not a huge investment in terms of um, placing a huge order of products. We had friends in branding and digital, so they could look after the website for us at a very cheap rate. And we just thought, let's try it. And it just exploded. Again, we, we dedicated so much of our time to the influencer space, which, again, was free and so much easier. And Frank was really right time and right place and right product and right price point. We ticked all the boxes. We worked really hard, but we had everything going for us. There was no competition. Our product was n- n- novel. It, people had never seen anything like this before. The selfie effect was like, so big for us so you know it it was amazing and not many businesses have that opportunity I couldn't say that you could have the same expectations marketing a dishwashing liquid like it's just not the case but yeah it really threw us into it and we probably experienced like the growth that a business might experience over 10 years in two years threw us into the investment space and the retail space international markets and this was you know, when I was 24. So it was a lot. It's, I can imagine it would be a lot. Talk to us a little bit then about the, around the emotional side of things, you know, how do you even comprehend that at 24 when you, it's just you and your friends kind of doing this thing? How do you comprehend the, you know, the growth, the responsibility, the investor stuff? Like where were you at? (laughs) mentally yeah to be honest I don't know if a 24 year old can comprehend it or 24 year old me I would have liked to have said I had my head on my shoulders at that age but the emotional intelligence or things I have learned since then makes me feel like I knew nothing at 24 and you know there was five of us co-founding Frank Body and that was a really interesting dynamic to work with and we were growing up as individuals we were growing up as business owners and then we were growing up in terms of identifying with money and wealth and success and I think that money and success really exposes the person that you are deep down and that was a really interesting ride for each of us and personally so it probably wasn't I don't think I confronted what was going on because it all moves so fast as well. So you're kind of just like going with it and it's exciting and it's so fun. 
So it's really hard to take a step back from it. And I think because we were essentially a group of partners too, we were in like a bubble of what was going on. And then we had a few friends who were doing businesses like this, which was another bubble. And I felt fortunate that my boyfriend at the time was working with us, but wasn't one of the co-founders. And I really felt like he brought me kind of back to the ground a lot to be like, this is a bubble that you're existing in and there's a world outside of it because it's really easy to eat your own shit essentially and believe your own shit and then become out of touch with reality. And those first couple of years at Frank were just like, yeah, it was a ride and it was fun and amazing and, you know, I wouldn't take it back, but I think I would do it very differently if I had the knowledge I have now. How can we stay grounded when things are just going crazy for us? Things are going really, really well maybe or we feel like we're just on cloud cloud nine. How can we stay grounded? That's a really good question and I think that if I were to give someone advice on that, I would say if you could to try and establish a relationship with someone in your life that holds you accountable to that grounding and to have like regular check-ins with them and yeah this is me like looking back and being like that would have been great for me to have someone who knows who I am and what I value and care about and what I want for myself and then every six months or a year be like where are you at here how are you going you told me that this is what you wanted to do with your life or that you never wanted to compromise its value have you or haven't you those sort of questions so I think that's a really good way to do it and then I think it is about creating space for yourself and finding what your routines and practices are for you to be sort of the best version of you like yeah I have my personal practices for being grounded which I'm always happy to share with people but then I say like you've got to find your own and I think a big problem with hustle culture or entrepreneurship or founder stories is that we always try on other people's lifestyles and routines instead of finding our own, you know, and we get caught up in like, oh, Erica meditates and journals and runs, so I have to, that's the key to success. It's like, no, you find what is your version and what works for you. Just because we all want to be Erica. Jesus, <laughs> I can't you tell. No, oh, no, no it's, and it's I could... painful being me sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I kind of love these kind of conversations because it is just dissect and just taking down those walls of, wow, this glossy businesses and this amazingness and actually just getting really real about the struggles behind it. So I kind of want to now dive, Mm. yeah, so I kind of want to now dive into that segue out of Frank and Willow and Blake and, you know, bringing yourself to, I guess, 2017, which is when you kind of started, started your new business. So talk to us about where your headspace was at when you exited those two previous companies and then where the idea for Frank came about. Oh, Fluff. Fluff, don't worry. It's a Freudian slip. So Frank was incredible, but like I will always say, and I think each of us at Frank would say five co-founders is a lot of people. It's a lot of cooks in a kitchen. And I am like stubborn and crazy and I really had to accept and acknowledge that I was wanting to run 
a ship in a certain way. But there were several, I guess, captains of the ship that I, so I couldn't make some of those calls. And my like personal journey within Frank or within the beauty industry, I think really developed over those three years and my relationship to beauty and to media and how I was consuming. And sometimes I'm like, where did this like disheartenment come from? Like, where did my frustrations come from? And I guess that is all to do with my story and my upbringing and my, what I've been through that one day I just woke up and I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. I don't connect with this brand and our mission and our values. So I guess I kind of checked myself really and was like, is this what you want to do for the rest of or for the foreseeable future? And the catalyst was that we were getting investment at Frank Body, so we had to sign on for five years as co-founders. So that was really like I had to make a call. And I had spent a lot of time in the US in those three short years with Frank Body and met a lot of founders, met a lot of consumers and a lot of influences and there was just this feeling that something wasn't right and that we were taking and I say we collectively about the industry like taking social media too far not being responsible with what we were doing just getting caught up in the machine because it was moving so fast kind of was very unconscious how everyone was participating in it and I thought maybe I could do something better and because I had decided I didn't want to spend the next five years at Frank I was like well I have to do something And my time in America, I'd seen how much the beauty industry was growing in the cosmetic space. And I was really interested in that and thinking about my relationship with makeup and thinking about the influence influences were having in the cosmetic space that didn't sit right or feel good to me. I think it it happened in parallel with me having quite a close relationship with my three younger cousins who were 13, 15 and 17 at the time and just feeling emotionally invested in their growth and their journey around identity and discovery and beauty. And I was really conscious that they had so much more noise and so many pressures that I didn't have as a teenager. And I was looking at women my age in their like mid-20s to you know, and then women who were in their 30s and late 30s and almost seeing the damages that had been caused by the really small amount of media that we were consuming. So I just felt this like, like what's going to happen with these younger generations who are exposed to so much and what beauty brand, especially in Australia, is looking out for them and offering them an alternative that doesn't tell them to buy heaps of makeup and doesn't tell them to cover their face and isn't selling this idea that they're not enough without makeup so that was sort of really the the moment for me where I was like this is I think what I want to do and where I can put my energy into it and yeah here I am three and a half years later (laughs) (laughs) no I it's yeah I find it so interesting I think even just you you touching on that idea of self-worth around beauty products and whatnot at that time, do you think that, you know, you're looking at your cousins and whatnot, I guess I just, I just want to know, like, if were you kind of thinking, wow, if I hadn't perceived, if I hadn't have kind of grown up with all of this, more is better, cover up, whatnot, I would be in a more, you know, I'd be, feel more connected to myself. Like, is that, was that what was going through your head? And if so, I guess, you know, for our peers out there listening who do feel like they just aren't good enough and they just 
they're just, they really just don't see their self-worth, what would you say to them? I would say to sit with it and explore it and get really curious about it, which is what I've been really diving deep into, especially last year. I realise I've been doing it for a long time through my work but have actually become aware of, like, this journey in the last year. And it's something I really struggle with and I think it's not something that you can change overnight. I think your self-worth fluctuates over your life um, depending on the people you interact with and your experiences, but it's very heavily informed in your younger years. So it's really trying to take a look at where your idea of yourself and your worth and your identity comes from, like what you've learned from your parents and your experiences And then once you're aware of it and understand it, you can kind of choose or go down this path of trying to like break patterns if they're not serving you. So like my kind of journey with self-worth, there's been experiences I've had or things I've learned from my parents that have been incredible and served me well and built up my resilience and my grit, which has been so good in business. And then it's gotten me to points where I've realized that I've been closed off or haven't been vulnerable enough or haven't, you know, appreciated my weaknesses or strengths in some areas so I've really been trying to understand that so I can choose what I want to parts of me that I want to keep and what parts of me I don't need or aren't serving me anymore but it's hard because it's easy to do that if you have blinkers on but if you're constantly looking and comparing or being exposed to all this content that sort of preys on those more vulnerable parts it's so easy to be influenced So I think the first thing of why Fluff exists again is to try and increase this awareness about oneself and one's idea of oneself and to encourage questioning about why we do what we do, why we see ourselves the way we do, why we think what we think, why we buy what we buy. Like it's all connected and products are really just a way of us expressing ourselves. So it's really nice to be like, why did I buy that product? Like, why do I like that? And that's where branding for me is fascinating. You know, why do I get my coffee from across the road and pay $5 for it when I could get a dollar coffee from 7-Eleven? It's like I assign my, their values caught up in that coffee from across the road that I don't connect with from 7-Eleven. I mean, it's just coffee at the end of the day. But, you know, so the same thing applies for makeup. Like why do people buy from fluff as opposed to going to a chemist and buying a Maybelline bronzer for three quarters of the price? Do you know what I mean? Like this is where branding and like the psychology of products or branding is so interesting. If I went off on a tangent, that's just exactly what I do. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love it. Where do you think that connection, you seem like... What I love about you is you seem so connected to this idea of people and how they think and the psychology behind the the, the brands or even the buying behavior. You know, where do you think that it's almost like, almost to a point of like an obsession around it, which I freaking love, you know, where do you think that comes from for you? Um, Yeah, that's a good question. And I don't really, I don't have a straight answer for you. I know that I've just always been curious and that I sit in a room with people I'm typically quiet and just observing and just interested and thinking about people and listening and wondering why they are that way which I can often seem like not present but it's like I'm 10 steps ahead or just sort of 
thinking about what's happening outside of what's happening. And I think that's like, it's served me well in business because it's like I can understand consumers in a way that other people wouldn't or I pick up on really small details that other people wouldn't um, and I have this sort of hunch about consumers. So, yeah, and I, I just don't know really where it came from. I mean, yeah. Sixth sense. Yeah, I really am trying to understand that. Like did my parents kind of teach me that or did I watch my parents do that or was I carried away in books when I was younger and so I was creating little worlds in my head around characters and then just put that onto humans as well yeah I'm not sure it's the Erica touch I mean (laughs) (laughs) no I love that and I think it is it's just so valuable to do that yeah deep work and just try and understand ourselves and something that I find fascinating about you Amazing. So let's talk a little bit about the progression, you know, as we start to wrap up, the progression around fluff. So you said it's been three and a half years. You know, how, what's that been like for you? What's been, I guess, the toughest thing, that one of the biggest challenges for you? And I guess, you know, for our peers out there listening who want to know, how did you even kind of get that off the ground? Like, what were those things you did? Those, maybe the first couple of yeah. things you did. So fluff is the opposite to Frank and it's so interesting where I said to you that Frank was right time right place right product right price I would say fluff was wrong time wrong place wrong product wrong price um and we often talk about it from the future or still are from the future and we're just too far ahead of where consumers were at and that's been my biggest challenge and and lesson in terms of how I bring the future and the present together in terms of product and branding. But I knew I wanted to create something big. I didn't want to do something from my bedroom. I wanted a store. I wanted a lot of products, cosmetics you can't make by hand or I don't have the skills to do that and I didn't want to have that approach. I wanted to work with some of the best manufacturers in the world. So just the startup costs comparatively, it was huge. So we raised just under a million dollars to launch Fluff and have 11 investors and we started with a store and we started with three full-time staff members. So just the cost in getting that off the ground was a lot. And when I try and communicate with people when, you know, I can say Fluff is doing really well, you know, we're selling this amount of product every month and people are like, that's great, you're killing it. But then I have to be like, but it costs me this much to run it each month. And for a business and that's what I always try to talk about to people when they're thinking about starting an idea or a business I say well what do you you want how much do you want to earn from this do you want to make 50 60 80 grand just pulling numbers out cool so how much product do you have to make just to make 80 grand but then you also have the expense of those products so and then you have if you have rent and then you have the setting up of a business. You have the, there's so many things. And then they start realizing like, oh, my God, I have to sell thousands and thousands of this product. And then I say, well, do you feel confident that you can? And if you do, it's like, go for it. But know that it might not happen overnight. Or it certainly won't happen overnight. It might happen in a year, which is really quick. It might happen in three years, which is still really quick. So it's why I often really encourage people to do something that they care about, that they value, especially today because there's enough shitty businesses making heaps of money (laughs) that I always sort of ask, like, why should that exist? If it already exists, like, is your version better or is it more responsible? 
And if not, like, honestly, just let the other people do it. Like, what's the point in just putting something out there that's already exists? So true and such valuable advice. I love it. I'm conscious of your time, but oh my goodness, I feel like we could speak for, like speak forever. And I, I'm so fascinated, I guess, by your your journey of the last, I would say, like eight years or something, like something crazy. You know, you've been in this in this business world for so long and you've achieved so much, you know, from, from your Frank body days through to now with fluff. And although it is, you know, as with any business, an upward hill battle, it's, I think what you've been able to achieve and I guess the mission, the mission behind fluff is just so inspiring. So I want to take a moment to acknowledge you, yeah, Erica, for, for your awesome work, for showing us, especially us young women that, you know, we, we can go out there. It's going to be tough, but we can go out there and do the thing that we care most about. Definitely. So I guess the final two questions, I've got final two questions for you. The first one is, what are the three key pieces of advice that you would give to yourself that you you would give to our peers out there listening that you wish you got when you were just starting out? I think that for me, I would say to definitely like check yourself or have someone that can check you to check in with and sort of really, you know, starting with those ideas around what you value and what you care about just so that you don't get caught up in that machine because it can really like bite you later on in life. I would say to definitely pursue what you most want and what you're like, what you dream of, but just know that it does take time. But in that time, there's growth and there's there's so much more reward over over time. And like my biggest challenge has been going slower because you know Frank was so fast, and it's something that I really struggle with. That it's almost like my autumn matic responses to go really fast and so I've had to slow down but it's mean I've made much more conscious decisions about what I'm doing and then I think if you're starting your own business I would say to be you know conservative in terms of with your money and where you put that and to to learn as much as you can around financial stability or financial growth or what it takes to run a business and then alongside running your life so that you can set yourself up for the least amount of failure or hard learnings. I love it. So great. So our final question is how we finish every episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. And that is, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about? I like to think that pursuing what you're most passionate about means that you might be remembered for when you leave the world and for impacting the world in a positive way. I think the value is in how people will talk about you when you leave the world too. There's this incredible book called The Road to Character by David Brooks and he talks about there are two ways we can be remembered and one is for our resume and one is for our eulogy and he asks like what you would prefer and you know I for me, of course, it's a eulogy. Like I want to be spoken about for how I made people feel and like my moral or social values as opposed to what I did. And, or just, you know, it's about asking yourself what your definition of success is. 
really. And again, it's going to be personal. It's going to be your own one. I love it. Erica, ladies and gentlemen, oh my goodness, we have had a blast. Where can people learn more about you and Fluff? So you can head to our website, itsallfluff.com. And our Instagram is itsall.fluff. And my face is on that feed often. Um, But yeah, I really encourage people to look on the website or on our social and just get a feel for what we do. We have an issues platform, which is all about people's thoughts and feelings and issues with the industry, which anyone can submit writing to. Um, And that's something I feel really passionate about in supporting young writers and just having a different take on the beauty industry. So that's a good way to get to know Fluff as well through that platform. Amazing. We will link them up in the show notes. Thanks so much again, Erica. It's been so Thanks awesome. Thanks for having me and asking good questions. I love Yay. It. I love it. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Piers, that's a wrap. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest peer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or any app where podcasts are played and leave us a review. We produce with passion and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, if you need inspiration, look amongst your peers. <laughs>